2: It was the best of time, it was the
0: worst of time. She was the people's princess. A little fight on the beaches. Away,
1: oh, man. these are the things that made England. A little
0: fight on the landing ground. These
1: are the things that made I England. a body but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry. And these are the things that made England, England and St. George.
2: The Things That Made England.
0: Hello, everyone, and the Things That Made England are back. And although you will have heard Fiona's uh, voice and comments before quite a lot, uh, I am joined today by Fiona in a full episode or three. Hello, Fiona.
2: Hello, full episode, but alas, not full voice at the moment. I've had a most horrible sinus infection. You know, David, I didn't know I had sinuses until I moved to the United States. Is that right? And I really didn't. I'm I'm uh, I'm a creature. Well, you know, I'm Welsh, and I'm a creature that is best suited to rain, which obviously right. keeps our airways clear. But you is know, that I move, right? Yeah, I they, think. Then so. they bung them up. I don't think so because right. I I never have a problem when I'm at home. Never, never have a problem when I'm at home. But I've just had the most dreadful sinus infection. Actually, lost my voice. And as you know, and many of our uh, listeners might be aware, I my voice is my career. So,
0: <laughs> so that was a, a bit of a loss. Well, you're sounding great now. I'm a bit croaky. Please forgive me. But you can um, uh, you can listen to me croak on uh, for a while. Maybe what you need to get those sinuses right, Fiona, is a good bun.
2: I'd love a good bun.
0: Yes, who wouldn't? Because that is what we're doing today. So everybody, what are we doing? What Fiona and I are doing? We are going to talk about the classic English bun. Now, English bun, bit of a misnomer, really, because I think it's very difficult with a lot of these buns to divide up between the, uh, you know, the home nations. So British buns might be a better title.
2: Except, except, David, we really are, you know, from the list of the buns you sent me, we really are mostly dealing with very English buns, in my opinion. That is very good.
0: Well, I'm very pleased with that because, you know, I know that, you know, you're a stickler for uh, English, what's the word, cultural appropriation, such as you would claim the longbow. Wrongly, obviously, but such as you would claim. Uh, so it's good that I've done a good job.
2: And David, I have- obviously- David, I'll meet you on the field, longbow <laughs> in hand.
0: I think you'll give me a whipping at that. It sounds like you're rather good at the longbow. Uh, we'll,
2: we'll duke it out the old-fashioned way.
0: Right. I, will, I, I, I prefer social media. Uh, you know. Okay, so the bun, and why the bun, I hear you ask. Well, I'm a rather traditional sort of bloke, and I have been aware, you know, since I was a kid, there was a lot of rather frugal-looking buns that, you know, my grandmother would try to delight me with by saying, why don't you have this exotic bun? And I'd look around for the fondant French fancy. But anyway, my childhood was full of these rather frugal-looking buns, not the sort of confectionery-covered things that you get these days in Greggs. So I've I've been rather conscious about these rather frugal traditional buns losing out to modern confections with vast amounts of sugar on them, you know, fondant fancies. Uh, those are other foul fruit tarts that fill French patisseries, that sort of thing. I, Fiona, I bet you like uh, French patisseries, don't you? Because you could be a more cultured in, 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 in
2: their place, in their but place. But I am with you. I like a good bun, a good, mm-hmm. old-fashioned, fruity, or even not so fruity, saffron-filled bun mm. with a good cup of tea. Nothing beats it. You can keep your fondant fancies as far as i'm concerned
0: excellent you can keep your fondant fancies i could put that on my grave um so actually while i think about it then what is your favorite bun i didn't ask you this question before when we we're writing this so i'm sorry i've blindsided you and i'm talking to cover so you can think what is oh, i know it's it
2: the cornish saffron the cornish saffron the bun cornish saffron. Right. is well, perhaps my favorite uh, but i do have a, a warm plate when i can't get a really good cornish saffron bun then i do like and i like saffron buns rather than the saffron cake ooh all oh, right okay difference um yeah. but a good old fashioned toasted tea cake mm. with lashings of real butter yes so
0: look my favorite uh, bun uh fiona is the lardy cake and i consider the lardy cake to be the epitome epitome of the English bun. It's solid, it's fat-filled and lardy. It's got a bit of fruit in it, spot of sugar to make it all go down. Absolutely classic and legendary.
2: It is indeed legendary. Love the lardy cake.
0: Excellent. Very good. We're on the same page. So look, gentle listeners, this is an opportunity for you over the next three episodes to be inspired by our uh, bun law, maybe to do some cooking yourself, I'm going to do some cooking, rubbish though I am, and you can if you don't if you're not doing it already, taste the joys of uh, the homemade bun. You're probably all making your own buns anyway. Okay, so what is a bun? The definition of a bun: is basically sweet yeasted bread. So I've got a quote for you from John Kirkland in 1927: "A bun may be defined as a soft, small, plump, sweet, fermented cake." That's your. Um, technical description of a bun. I can't see myself using that again. Anyway, this is the category of English knots about which we should be talking over the next three podcast episodes, Fiona and I, and we hope that you will be inspired, as I say, and maybe place them on the website before you eat them. So the number of regional varieties of yeast cakes and buns is legion, more legion than the legions of Beelzebub. They are all over the place. In the days of yore, uh, many moons ago, many households would not have the resources to recreate to create the whole bun thing themselves so' oh, we're talking back in the nineteenth century, maybe they 'd find the yeast difficult to come by if they were no longer making their bread at home um, or they no longer had a bread oven so they 'd take the ingredients along to the baker who would provide the dough and the baking, and the the ingredients would be provided by the house owner so Uh, Things like raisins and currants, sugar, lard, spice, that sort of thing. Many of these are recipes in Elizabeth David's view, who I will talk about in a moment, which stretch back as far as Elizabethan times in places were preserved in recipes in the 19th and 20th centuries in particular. So uh, as Mistress Dodds, the... Cooks and Housewives Manual of 1826 put it. Every country, town, village, and rural neighborhood in England, Scotland, and Ireland has its favourite holiday cake or currant loaf. I'm sure that she also meant to mention Wales. However, in my view, and one of the reasons for doing this series of episodes, so I may be wrong about this, and you may all uh, complain about this and tell me that I'm I'm wrong, but in my perception, the popularity of the yeast bun. Uh, or at least in variety, has declined rather dramatically. Maybe this is connected with the amount of baking that's done at home now, which used to be uh, far more, of course. Also, ironically, the available of, of some alternatives in the supermarket has kind of pushed things out. So I'm busking here, but the fact that a, a Cornish saffron bun isn't well known anymore might have something to do outside of Euphiena, might have something to do with the predominance of a default series of competitors in supermarkets. So a cinnamon roll, bath bun, tea cakes, crumpets, hot cross buns, they're all over the place. But finding anything else is a bit more of a struggle. You have to know your local baker or your village bakery. You know, try finding a lardy cake. It's, it's not
2: that easy. And do you think it's become more localized, David? Do you think that, that as we have more variety, people have, you know, if you go to a certain area, you'll find a certain type of, of bun. It's interesting, that would be rather nice if that was the case.
0: I must admit, my assumption had been that, like everything else, things were getting getting globalised, you know, that because everybody goes to supermarkets much more these days, that what you're getting is something made in, I don't know, Loughborough and shipped out to, to Morrisons all over the place. And so what you're getting is, I would think, is less regionalization, you know, less specificity and variety, but it might be that everybody's getting a bit more mad on cooking. And now artisanal bakers are all over the place. I do love that word, artisanal. Anyway, so maybe there's something in that. Maybe that kind of people want more specific, authentic stuff these days. Don't know. I'm busking.
2: I remember as a child and as a young woman, part of the Saturday shopping was stopping off and having, you know, tea, tea in a yes. bun. Uh, in between doing the shop and going home, that was the big treat when I went shopping with my grandmother. For example, that was the big treat. Before we catch the bus home, we'll we'll stop off at this little tea shop and we'll have afternoon well, tea. How lovely! And it was a it was lovely. Yeah. And but afternoon tea has become sort of when I return home to Britain. And you may all yell at me and say that isn't the case. But when I he- return home to Britain now, it seems to be a little bit more touristy. Yes. And there are far more coffee shops with with you know fancy yes. cheesecakey, fancy schmancery things.
0: Don't get me started on coffee. Oh, work of the devil. Okay, so as I say, we're gonna split into three episodes. So we're gonna have a bit of lore and do some cooking over time. But before I do, I thought I would mention Elizabeth David. Do you know of Elizabeth David, Fiona?
2: Oh, legendary. She's legendary. And, and I use, she's wonderful. She's a legend. Absolutely.
0: She's need. my must I didn't know about Elizabeth David until I met Jane, who had a collection of her books and swore by her. Um, and so more than often, we're going to follow the law of Elizabeth David. So Elizabeth David came to mind because Jane had a copy of a book called English Bread and Yeast Cookery, which is
2: a bit of a monster. I used to have that book. I'd like to write a book on the things you should not bring to America and the things you should if you're immigrating and vice versa to going to England. And and yes, I wish I had not left that behind.
0: Right. We can send you one if you tell us what your birthday is. And Elizabeth David then is is reputed to be the person that transformed English cooking from limp cabbage and hard lard into the triumph of international cuisine for which it is known around the world today. I sort of exaggerate for effects. I don't think it's known around for the world for that at all. But seriously, Elizabeth David's biographer Artemis Cooper, I'd love to be called Artemis, wouldn't you? Notes that before her fame and writing, and I quote, the English hardly noticed what was on their plates, which was perhaps just as well, which is kind of rude, isn't it? That is awesome. very rude.
2: You know, and yeah. I and I wonder where where this this idea that the English don't appreciate food good food came from. But, you know, it's 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 one that hampers us still to this date.
0: It does follow us around, doesn't it, however much change there has been. Anyway, apparently Elizabeth David helped transform the situation. I will give you a quick bio. She was born Elizabeth Gwynne to a very smart family in Sussex. Though Personally, I've always thought that all families are, are very smart in Sussex. And she went through some very posh schools. But she was sort of a free spirit type, restless, independent, So on the eve of the Second World War, she took off with her lover to France, was stranded in Greece for a while during the war, and essentially she developed a love and knowledge of Mediterranean cookery there, for which apparently lard was less essential than in England, which, you know, is distressing. In 1947, she returned, married to uh, one Anthony David, and she lived the rest of her life in Chelsea. She wrote for Harper's and for Vogue, but the book, which transformed her reputation, which is still very well known, I think, was published in 1969, French Provincial Cookery, it's called. Being French Provincial Cookery, she popularised olive oil quite a lot. When I was a lad, olive oil was something you bought from a chemist in very small vials. And actually, we bought it so they put it in my dad's ear to soften the buildup of wax. And my, my mother at this time, as she reminds us constantly now, she was a cookery demonstrator. And so she really should have known better. But we just didn't do olive oil in those days or we didn't in in Loughborough anyway anyway elizabeth david opened a corkish shop published many other books and died in
2: 1992
0: where did you buy your olive oil from Fiona, in your well, youth
2: well you know I, I had i have one of those lovely international families and spent some ah. of my childhood in france so but but you know lard was already was uh, was always prominent in the house Next, well, not next to because you want to keep lard in the fridge in the little tiny fridge, and and um, you want to keep um, and preferably good old dripping and and olive oil dripping, bread and dripping.
0: Oh, stop, stop, Fiona. I'm feeling hungry
2: um and uh but we did have olive oil we did have olive oil yeah. and m- my my parents were unusual in that when the when vegetable oil came in I think I'm probably older than you because I'm pretty much older than methuselah um but when it's <laughs> quite when, old
0: <laughs> I'm pretty old yeah, you're really <laughs> looking better than that can I just say <laughs> i feeling utterly safe you're looking better than Methuselah okay oh, thank you
2: um up. but uh you know when the big Corn oil, vegetable oil, rage arrived as far as I could remember in the nineteen sixties. My my parents went, Puh, "It's olive oil, olive oil," but ah, we still kept lard. We still had lard.
0: Right, okay, well, like that sounds that quite would
2: not cook without lard and butter.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, I would, we would never have been without lard um, in the fridge. Dripping was a bit rarer, but uh... okay. So we're going to start with. A bit of a classic, one a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns.
2: If you have no daughters, give them to your sons. Yes. One a penny, two a penny, hot cross buns. That was the old uh, crier's call, wasn't it? And I do wish that I was old enough, David, to have remembered the town sellers calling out their wares. I know it's supposed to be a nuisance, but it must have been delightful. I love the hot cross bun, but it shouldn't be eaten except when. Oh, uh, Easter. Is that right? Yeah, uh, Good Friday. Good Friday, of course. Good Friday. You can get A away with the hot cross bun on Easter Saturday, but for heaven's sakes, not beyond there. Is not that before, right? Yeah, not before Good Friday, not after Easter Saturday. Thank you very much.
0: Just to test you, Fiona, because clearly you, you know something about the hot, hot cross bun. To where do we own the origin of the humble
2: English spiced bun? The base,
0: the spiced bun, the English spiced bun.
2: Well, I'm going to let you talk um, about this because, but it's one of my favourite places in the entire world. Really? I believe if if we're talking about St Albans.
0: We are talking about St Albans. Congratulations.
2: Home of the true...
0: Ah, not St. George something.
2: then. No, St. Alban. I love St. Alban. And my nephew, St. Alban's gave us many beautiful things, including my nephew Nicholas, but uh, <laughs> who still lives there. And the cathedral is wonderful. And I have to say, St. Alban is one of my favorite saints who actually, I was born on his feast day. So I might be a little partial, but there you go.
0: I don't think it's uh, St. Albans himself, but it is a monk of uh, who lived in St. Albans in the 14th century. The innovation att- attributed to this monk um, in the 14th century was that he added cinnamon to the basic English spiced bun. And despite my previous rants in this parish about cinnamon, uh, they are the basis for a large genus of English buns. You know, cinnamon is pretty fundamental to quite a lot of buns and i guess you know okay cinnamon but we we should be thankful small mercies that this monk didn't have a passion for cucumber because that would have written out all buns of my life what,
2: what is it what is it david about um buns and monks i i'm going to bring you now to pennsylvania just for a moment i didn't well, mean then... to leave and do this but i'm going to but <laughs> um but the pretzel the soft pretzel oh, yes. which is oh, yeah, was yeah. In- invented by a monk, it is said originally in the Alsace Lorraine, and then brought to Pennsylvania by holy men who would give it as gifts to children. So there must there must be some kind of correlation between gifting children, perhaps for for going to church. I don't know. It's, there's a spec? If somebody knows, wouldn't it be interesting to find out?
0: It would be very interesting to to find out. Actually, I mean, maybe it was. You know, that here was a kind of treat that monks could have. I don't know. Um But yeah, if there's an answer out there, it would be good to know. So the tradition then of this this bun from St Albans uh, came together with a much more ancient tradition, which was of having cakes and offerings around Good Friday. And so in some shape or form, this St Albans bun and the Cross of Easter became combined and we get the hot cross bun. I'm told that the cross commemorates Jesus's crucifixion of course and the spices in there signify his embalmment which sounds a little bit gross to me and I shall therefore choose not to believe that particular um, legend. So the hot cross bun combined these true, true traditions the English cinnamon tradition and the tradition of Easter. We don't quite know when they burst into the big time but there was an ordinance in 1592 from Queen Elizabeth I that No bakers at any time or times hereafter make, utter or sell by retail, within or without their houses, unto any of the Queen's subjects, any spice cakes, buns, biscuits or other spiced bread, except it be at burials or on Friday before Easter or at Christmas, upon pain of forfeiture of all such spiced bread to the poor. Blimey! (laughs) We might guess why Queen Bess banned the bun, uh, but it probably, I suppose, has something to do with the religion and superstition. So hot cross buns have a bunch of myths attached to them. Apparently, if you make them on Good Friday, they'll never go off. So that's a tip.
2: My, my uncle used to say that. In fact, we have a Did story he? later about hot cross buns. And Oh, yes. He was a bit of a folklorist himself. And, right. Yeah.
0: They ward off evil spirits, if you heard that, which I assume doesn't mean evil spirits in the sense of, you know, bad gin.
2: I hadn't heard that one, but I I wouldn't be surprised because, you know, spices being very expensive and rather exotic, you'd think. Mm. that. And the cross on top of the bun, that would ward off a lot of things. Keep your vampires away, wouldn't it?
0: I suppose that's true. But In the 16th and 17th century, Protestants, of course, were very suspicious of anything that wasn't in the Bible. And uh, they're not mentioned specifically. Jesus doesn't eat a hot cross bunny. And a cup of tea wasn't in Genesis either. So uh, the prots probably decided to cancel bun eating. And maybe that's why Queen Bess got, got uppity about it. Anyway, before long, the bun was back. Stone cold, sober, and a matter of fact. And that is... an illusion, a song illusion, which, you know, there'll be a prize if anybody can get it. So I'm also told that the Aussies have perverted the true traditions uh, of Albion in a very Aussie way, because that's sort of thing that Aussies do, really, by introducing a new type of bun called the knot cross bun, decorated with a smiley bun, smiley face rather than a cross, and made horrendously sweet. And don't come the raw prawn with me, Aussies, you know it's true. It's also very funny, the knot cross bun.
2: It is funny. I have to tell you, though, I am a bit of a purist. And alas, in America, at least in Pennsylvania, I can't speak for the entire country. The sort of hot cross bun which you get here at Easter, which is frankly tasteless because it's filled with the wrong sort of fruit, has an iced cross, a cross uh, of icing, an outrage. which makes me cross because you yeah. can't toast the thing. No, of course I hadn't thought of that. And determined yes, I mean that oh, delight. Yeah. That warm toasted, mmm, with plenty of butter. Now, Pennsylvanians do a Shrove Tuesday treat, which actually came to us from the Pennsylvania Deutsch or Germans called the Fastnacht, And that's delicious. It's kind of a potato bun or a potato donut. But their hot cross makes me cross bun just doesn't work for me.
0: Mate, no. That's, I mean, if you can't toast it, that's the end end of it all. Right, so you probably all know uh, what is in the holy bun. Flour, yeast, currants, sugar and salt and a sweet spice mix of your choosing. But I assume cinnamon must be part of it. Uh, The hot cross bun dough needs to be a little firmer than a normal spiced bun so that you can mark it with the cross. Some folks do this with pastry, but our Elizabeth David treats that idea with a bit of a passion you know and just just create it with your knife she's a bit of a purist
2: i no 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 sorry elizabeth she was that. a legend but i have to disagree with her i love the sight of that plain dough cross that's what i, I was what i was brought up with right. and it makes me feel positively nostalgic that little bit of plain dough cross on the bun Reminds me of my childhood and of early morning trips to the bakery on Good Friday with, with my uncle, who was the folklorist, to buy a bun for each person in the house. Just one. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, it was an annual treat. And so it became massive, it, just massively important. And one for luck.
0: Right, okay. Uh, well, I'll we'll try and institute that, although I think we may be doing more than one for every member of the household, to be honest. You know, so 10 is probably the crowd's style. Anyway, so that is the hot Cross Bun. The next bun for this episode is a very famous bun, the Chelsea Bun, described by the author of English Food, Jane Grigson, as the best of all buns on account of their melting, buttery sweetness. Clearly, Jane can't have had any lardy cake when she wrote the book, but let's leave that for another time. The Chelsea bun, then, is basically currants and fruit, the ubiquitous spices, along with a bit of sugar glazing, all rolled up to make it look like a sort of edible snail with a distinctively square look to it, which I'll tell you how that comes about. They are absolutely renormous, and you will be able to see them on the Facebook site because, gentle listeners, I'm very excited to tell you that I have made some Chelsea buns. And despite my general rubbishness at cooking, they were an absolute, honest to goodness, bona fide triumph. Okay, Um, even if I say so myself, well done me. (laughs) So look, there's a story about the Chelsea bun, which marks it second only in verified antiquity to the spiced bun that we've just done. Around the end of the 17th century, there was a bun shop called the Chelsea Bun House. The Bun House was down by the river in Chelsea, although actually now it's in Pimlico, so possibly we ought to be calling them Pimlico Buns, but whatever. Anyway, the bun shop was near the river by what is now the Chelsea Hospital, and which used to be right next door to a pleasure garden called Ranley Gardens. Ranley Gardens were partly owned by the Drury Lane Theatre, oddly, and it was two shillings to get into them. Horace Walpole was very excited by it. It has totally beat Foxhall. You can't set your foot without treading on a prince or the Duke of Cumberland. Interestingly, Walpole used the teenage totally construction, but there's nothing new under the sun. Anyway, presumably the Duke of Cumberland he refers to would many years later be known as the Butcher of Culloden, and therefore we might wish Horace had trodden a little harder on the Duke of Cumberland. On his neck, possibly, but you know. <laughs> anyway, I digress. Ranley Gardens are now part of the Chelsea Hospital Gardens.
2: Ooh, the Chelsea Hospital Gardens, and may I now digress? Because if you may, if you're a lover of history, and if you're not a lover of history, story, sorry. Sorry, you've stumbled into the wrong room here. The Department of Argument is next door. This little area of London, and specifically Chelsea, is an absolute treat, especially if you love gardens. From the Chelsea Hospital Gardens, you can take a 20-minute walk to get to the Chelsea Physic Gardens, which was founded by apothecaries in 1673. And another gentle 15-minute stroll will take you to the site of what remains of William Roper's garden. He was the son-in-law of Thomas More, and this area was an orchard and garden gifted to William and Margaret, Thomas More's daughter, Margaret, by Thomas More, whose magnificent home was nearby. So 40 minutes of wandering. You will have some delightful gardens, and you will be easily compensated for the calories you'll consume munching on the fabulous hand-sized Chelsea buns that I know you've got one in each hand, David. I don't know where you got your <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs>
0: that sounds very good, actually. You know, I don't actually know Chelsea uh, at all well, so you've inspired me. I'll go and have a look when uh, we when we're out of lockdown.
2: You have to sort of hunt, you have to sort of hunt around a bit because a lot of it has been built up. And But it, it's one of those wonderful treats for a historian to go and seek out the little hints of what was once there and you can see them. And it's it's great. I love doing that. I love seeking out these.
0: Yeah, so it's a wonderful thing to do in London, actually, isn't it? Yeah, it happens so often. Anyway, so the the Chelsea Bun House we were talking about was owned by a man called Richard Hands, known effectively as Captain Bun. We're not being called Strongbow. I'd like to be called Captain Bun, please. What a fine name. Uh, The Bun House was terribly popular around Easter time because everyone queued up before Good Friday to buy their hot cross bun because they had the day off, Rich and poor both. However, its real fame began as it became known for a bit of fun as the Royal Bun House because George II and Queen Caroline and all the little Hanoverians loved it too and they patronised said House of Buns.
2: Did they have bun fights in the Bun House, I wonder?
0: (laughs) You'd hope so. You would hope so. That probably they went back, George II went back to Parliament to have his bun fights, although he wasn't keen on Parliament, was he? Anyway... Anyway, well, this is the place where was invented that culinary masterpiece, the, the Chelsea Bun. The Chelsea Bun is made from an egg-enriched yeast dough, which is then flavoured with mixed fruit. Though, so, yeah, it's basically currants and raisins again, cinnamon or no, mixed spice. No, no, no. No? Mm. Good. Yeah, no, correct me. No,
2: no. Mixed fruit in the English sense includes very, very tiny slivers of candied orange and lemon peel. And I am talking tiny slivers here. And the blessed, most wonderful fruit of all, the sultana. The, the sultana is the most incredible fruit because it, it swells up, you know, which is why we use it in curries. Because if, if you inject a little bit of moistness to it, it swells up and becomes very, very moist. And I can rhapsodize about the sultana for years. They're called golden raisins in America. And David, I feel here I need to explain to the American listener who will instantly equate mixed fruit with an artificial glob of great chunks of I'm not quite sure gelatinous stuff mixed with currants, and and it has given the fruit cake a terrible reputation in the United States because it tastes artificial and dry, but the English mi- mixed fruit. Tiny slivers of orange and lemon peel um, that are candied, sultanas galore, currants and raisins, along with the spices. Yum.
0: Fine. Well, I, I'm, I hope I'm using the uh, correct stuff for my, uh, for my Chelsea buns, so I'll, I'll make sure for next time anyway that I do. So, OK, you raise the dough, then you roll it out on a flat surface and you spread it with a mixture of your your fruit, your brown sugar, and then butter as well. And then you fold it and roll it over. You put it in a square tin and cut it into slice cut into slices. So then you put them on sideways in a single layer in this buttered square tin and you let them rise again. The square tin thing you see is crucial because when the buns rise, they squish all together and they form their distinctive
2: it's not, square if it's shape. not square, it's not a Chelsea bun? If it's not square, it's
0: not a Chelsea bun. Absolutely, you heard it here. The Londonist website, which is a fantastic website, actually, if you're interested in London, also recalls that the bun shop finally closed in 1840. Ranley Gardens had closed in 1804, and therefore the passing trade that the bun shop took advantage of uh, had fallen. Fame of the Chelsea bun, though, remained as described by a poet. Here we go, a bit of poetry about a bun. Fragrant as honey and sweeter in taste, as flaky and white, as if baked by the light, as the flesh of an infant, soft, doughy and slight. Something slightly gross about the flesh of an infant thing, but, you know, it's kind of true. Anyway, Sir Richard Phillips also wrote, Before me appeared shops so famed for Chelsea buns, which for above 30 years I have never passed, without filling my pockets in the original of these shops. For even of Chelsea Buns, there are counterfeits. Filling my pockets, Fiona. I also want to fill my pockets with Chelsea Buns.
2: His pockets must have been rather large, Absolutely. though, because the Chelsea... <laughs>
0: yeah, that's actually true, the, the poacher's pockets. So one more fab fact, Fiona. Chelsea Buns also found a rival in the Hackney Bun and the Royal Bun crown moved to the east end from Chelsea. Actually, the hackney bun is exactly the same as the Chelsea bun, but cunningly, it uses Guinness-soaked fruit. And do you know who invented the hackney bun, Fiona? Not a clue. I'm here to tell you. I am told it was one William Joseph Tuck from a well-known family of bun house owners, originally owning a shop in Norwich, much visited by legal folks, Uh, and for name me a lawyer, Fiona, who does not love tucking into a bun uh, <laughs> so the tucks I opened this shop in norwich they ended up in in oz in the late 19th century opening more you guessed it kind of shops what kind of shops with the tucks tuck shop the tuck shops you're absolutely great selling fine tucker <laughs> i mean really tuck into the tuck. <laughs> <laughs> indeed But uh, do you know, do you think everybody knows the meaning of the
2: word tuck? I don't. I really don't. I don't think many Americans know the word tuck or what a tuck shop is. And I think many of us, I don't, I can't remember whether you went to boarding school and and, um, I did. And, And the difference between a tuck shop and a tuck cupboard and what tuck is, I think it's up to you to tell us what tuck is, David.
0: Actually, I don't know what a tuck cupboard is. I think you all have to I went to a day school. I went to a, uh, to the local grammar, and we did so you could have, have a tuck shop, and the tuck shop was, you know, a break or whatever. Uh, if you chose not to play footy, which I always did, you could nip down the tuck shop and buy yourself a few sweets or something. But a tuck
2: cupboard... Well, we had we, the tuck shop at at school. Was actually in school. They would buy in tuck, and we were allowed to purchase tuck every every Friday afternoon. And we encouraged our parents, and and anybody who was outside the school we could get hold of, to send us tuck, which is obviously anything anything edible and, and scrummy that you could keep. And we kept them in in little tins or big tins. Um, in a cupboard, and the the Tuck cupboard, and this is true I know of a lot of schools, was opened each day at 4pm for us to grab a little bit of Tuck to have with our tea, a little treat, right. so that we wouldn't have to face the dried bread that was going to be inevitably <laughs> offered.
0: Yes, okay, so the origin of the Tuck shop. Well, look, let's do uh, just one and a half more buns before we end today, Fiona. I, kn- I know we said that we would try and find some way to bore our uh, listeners a little bit less, but you know what the hell—we're here to bore people. So, would you mind if we do one and a half more
2: buns? I—I I don't mind. I have the—I have the energy. Okay. <laughs> here we
0: go then. One and a half more buns. Who is this quote from? You're going, I consider as indispensably necessary, and I shall not like being left behind. There is no place here or hereabouts that I shall want to be staying at, and though, to be sure. The keep of two will be much more than of one. I will endeavour to make the difference less by disordering my stomach with bath buns. Who was that then?
2: That has to be one of my favourite people. Is? It has to be Jane.
0: It is indeed Jane, Jane Austen. Austin. Jane Austen. It's a very famous quote from Jane Austen, where it's famous in Bath anyway, and it refers to the bath bun. The bath bun is a yeasty bun again, enriched with eggs once more. So it's close to a sort of brioche type texture glazed on the top. Unaccountably, somebody forgot to put the currants and raisins in it. But it does instead have a sugar cube at the bottom of each bun and is laced with caraway seeds.
2: And I love a bath bun mm. Mm. with a little bit of a little sugar cube. Yes.
0: Which goes very well
2: with tea, doesn't it? it oh, it's That idea does. of the sugar cube. Oh, lovely.
0: Anyway, here's a description of a bath bun from 1911 that's quoted in Elizabeth David's book. It is a sweet bun of somewhat stodgy type and is popularly supposed to constitute, with a little milk, the average form of luncheon taken by a mild curate.
2: I I think I've met even people like that (laughs) in bath.
0: (laughs) I love the thought of a mild curate having a bath bun with a little milk. I mean, come on, have some self-respect. Anyway, the quote that I found didn't elaborate on what the diet of an angry curate is, just a, just a mild one, but no doubt they were much more meat. Probably. He would have to have
2: cinnamon to fire him Ah, up.
0: you're probably right. Yes, you're probably right. Anyway, the bath bun was proved very popular at the Great Exhibition in 1851, uh, as well as with Jane Austen in 1801. Apparently, 943,691 bath buns were eaten at the Great Exhibition in 1851. And if that is a fact that you can't wow your friends with down the Boozer, I don't know what is.
2: That's a very impressive number. It is an impressive number.
0: number, isn't it? Um, I'd quite like to have made a contribution to that. But sadly, by all accounts, the bath buns available at the Great Exhibition were very heavily oversweetened, uh, And we are told that the refreshments at the Crystal Palace failed to even reach railway buffet standards, according to commentators of the time. And that, that my friends, that is seriously weak. So I don't know how many uh, listeners will understand this cultural reference, but the foundation myths are Surrounding the bath bun and her cousin, the Sally Lunn, are a little like Peckham Springwater, almost certainly tripe, and created by an opportunistic businessman just like Delboy. Uh, anyway, so the bath bun was certainly around in the 18th century, probably developed from a similar bath cake. And as we've seen before, the small yeasty bun might be created by using the extra dough from cakes and other ingredients and shoved back into the oven, vacated by the cakes afterwards while it was still hot. Um, However, eager for good marketing copy, it is reputed that the bath bun was created by a chap called William Oliver, who was an 18th century physician responsible for establishing the Bath Hospital. William Oliver is supposed to have invented them for his patients, uh, but his patients started to get a little porky. So Oliver apparently invented a dry biscuit instead, possibly the most uninteresting piece of food known to Western civilization called the Bath Oliver, which I think is now essentially a vehicle for cheese.
2: A, a vehicle for cheese? I, it, can't, it doesn't even rise to that. Mm. You could have the best piece of solid cheddar from cheddar on a bath Oliver and it would still taste like you put your cheddar on a piece of cardboard. Right. Have you actually ever met anyone yeah. who likes the bath Oliver?
0: No, never. I can't imagine
2: why I know it's,
0: anybody ever buys
2: it. It's a very worthy piece of food, isn't it? It's a very uh, worthy.
0: Piece. Worthy but dull.
2: It's the Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> bit. It's been introduced to us as a punishment for our sins. Right.
0: Yes, I suppose it's that. Now, the Sally Lunn is a much larger bun, a cake almost, really. It's, almost, it's it's most odd. You've got some cream in the dough, along with eggs, milk and sugar, along with grated lemon peel and mixed sweet spice. And then it's all glazed uh, with sugar. Like the bath bun, probably best eaten with jam and that sort of thing. But given its size, you no, might no. want to go easy on that. But you don't agree with that, do you? No,
2: no just, just as it comes. Right. Uh, I don't need anything. My Sally luns, thank okay. you.
0: <laughs> That'd be rude.
2: No, no comments from the
0: cheese <laughs> seats, if you please. <laughs>
2: that
0: wasn't me. That was somebody just came in and, and went. <laughs> I know that was somebody over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. They've there. they've gone <laughs>
2: no there. No comments from the cheese seats. No, my, my Sally Lunds, as they are, thank you very no. much. Are perfectly fine. You don't,
0: like, you don't like jam on your Sally Lunds. Fine, fair enough. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, So there is, you will not be surprised to learn, uh, a story about the Sally Lunn. It is said that a West Country Molly Malone type figure came to Bath selling her cakes, and her name was Sally Lunn, and that Sally had a pastry shop in Lilliput Alley in Bath. The recipe was lost on her death, spookily, but spookily rediscovered during some renovation works on her house in the 1930s. Oh, that was lucky, on a scrap of paper. I give you Peckham Spring. There is a food shop and a museum in Bath called the Salun, claiming to be the oldest house in Bath. Their story is that Salilan was in fact a Huguenot in the 1680s called Solange Lyon, which of course the English couldn't pronounce properly, so uh, Salilan. Another favourite legend poo poos all of this romantic stuff and says the name comes from a French cake called the Soleil a Lune cake, once again corrupted because the English can't pronounce French. So as far as Thailand is concerned, you pays your money and takes your choice of legend.
2: But you know, as, a, as someone who studied folklore for years and years and years and listened to a lot of stories, and particularly a lot of stories in the West Country, particularly in Somerset, I have to say that I wouldn't, I'm wouldn't. i not in the least bit surprised that the, reci- the recipes like this don't disappear. What happens is they're in your family cookbook and they're stuffed between pages and people just know it. I have a ton of my great-grandmother's recipes that aren't even written down that my children say, well, you know, how do we make this? How do we make this? I, so I absolutely... Yeah, I mean, that is, absolutely. that is true, I
0: suppose. People used to have, didn't they, uh, a sort of family almanac, which would be handed down from generation to generation and would be updated by each generation with things like uh, recipes and uh, memories and all the rest of it.
2: And most of us have things in the family that we we were taught, you know, why are you doing this? Because my grandmother taught me to do it this Mm. way and because her grandmother taught her to do it that way. Yeah, that's a a thing of
0: human life. I actually have, we have a similar recipe in our family, in the Crowther family, called uh, Chuff's Cheesecake uh chuff is a nickname of mine not to be revealed to anybody from liverpool and yes so i thought one day maybe i should make chuff's cheesecake in the interest of proving to everybody that uh cheesecake is not a cake
2: i think that would be next idea
0: anyway that'd be some future time we have for the moment we have come to the end of our first episode on buns everybody if you want to make a bun please do we'd love to see your buns as I say, I have made a Chelsea bun, and I will be posting my uh, posting my buns online. Come and join in.
2: I probably won't be making any buns <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay although when we get to crumpets later ah, i might I might um, break right. out my crumpet recipe and and give it a go. That would be very good.
0: okay next. well look, thank you for your um, uh, thank you for your company, Fiona, and thanks everybody for your attention and for listening. I hope we didn't talk to you too much. And if you're if you can bear it, we'll have another episode in a few weeks' time uh, on some more English buns. And of course, before we go, uh, we've got the roundup from uh, the last episode. So, take it away, Luke.
1: We have had quite an active time on the Facebook group since we released the Empire episode barely two weeks ago. We are all working hard to get more episodes out and this Buns one was just the first of three. Unlike the British Empire in many ways, we are a democratic organisation here at The Things That Made England and here are the results of the vote on whether the Empire should be considered a thing that made England and according to the good burghers of this parish, it indeed should. We had 71 votes for it to go into the Cabinet 13 who thought the Empire is so British it can't be considered English, and two votes for the, don't know, option. Interestingly, neither David nor Fiona voted, as the options available were a little murky. I think we might need to sign up to the swelling demand for electoral reform. I do hope not too many others of you felt disenfranchised in this way. But just because our members think that the Empire is a thing that made England it certainly does not mean that everyone is a big imperialist. Tim and Rob had an interesting exchange about where England stands in what is clearly a British Empire. I really enjoyed Leonard Goodnight, who surely has one of the greatest names ever, telling us about how the tune of Land and Hope and Glory is an instrumental in the States. And after the brouhaha we have had over here about people insisting that it must be sung with words, that was quite nice to hear. Rowena eternal troublemaker that she is, brought actual facts to the table and pointed out that I had got some info a bit wrong by saying that the AC in AC Milan stood for athletic and cricket. This is entirely wrong. They were set up as a cricket club, but the C stands for calcio. Far more Italian, I think we can all agree. My head is duly hung in shame. If it is this kind of banter that you are after... And frankly, who isn't in these socially deprived days? I think our Facebook page gives you plenty. We've had quite a lot of fun schooling each other on the rights and wrongs across various cultures. For example, just this evening, I have been able to mock our dear Michelle for making out that eight hours was some way exceptionally long time in which to decide a ball game. What else have we had? Lonnie posted something about men with long hair, ironically. Jennifer opened up a discussion about what we do between the bedsheets. Melissa recommended a competitor podcast by some duchess. How very infradig. Robin gave us Scottish gritters, while Andrew offered up British tapas. And Alison preempted this episode with her chocolate and marshmallow scones. I do hope that some of you will follow her lead and get on with some proper baking to show David how it is really done. The Things That Made England has a Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash ttme. We have got three tiers, Executive Producer, Official Patron and The Hat going round, so that anyone keen to support can choose a tier that fits most wallets. More than anything, you'll be receiving our undying gratitude and a mention on the show, but we'll also be posting a few random bits and bobs. For example, we have just made an outtake from the recent Empire episode where David and Droyfield go into depth about the origins of the British Navy, which is really something just for the more dedicated fan. We would like to thank our executive producers, Marilyn, Eric and Michelle, and also to thank Guy Smith and Catherine Ruiz who have just signed up as official patrons as well as a mysterious lady who goes just by the name of Foe. She sounds intriguing. And not to forget Joseph, who will be chucking some coins into the hat for each episode we release. Thanks all for listening, and we look forward to seeing your buns.
0: By the way, everyone, if and when you come along to the Facebook site, we'd really like to see pictures of your buns too, whether those are buns from anywhere else in the world. Tell us about your favourite bum and don't be smutty. OK, everybody, thanks for listening and uh,
2: goodbye. See you next time. Goodbye and see you next time.
1: God for Harry. And these are the things that made England. England. And St George. These
2: are the things that made England.